Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we have an exciting episode today. We're going to tackle a bunch of issues around the Israel-Palestinian conflict because we've heard you. This is what you want to hear from us on. And I have a great guest who I'll introduce in a second, but first, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, We are kind of rebooting our newsletter. A lot of you are sort of devoted uh, readers of the newsletter, but largely what we use it for is just show notes and research for this show. And actually, we're going to start using it more to provide you with commentary and resources. Like I just put up a piece yesterday that is like my reading list uh, for the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so uh, we're going to bring it back a little bit to how it used to be. And it won't just be about the conflict. It'll be about education. It'll be about general public policy issues. It'll be about the 2024 election. So you could subscribe to it at the lost debate that substack.com. And it'll also be a link, uh, the first link you'll see on this episode. But with that, we're welcoming back our friend Yasha Monk. And as a reminder, he's author of five books that have been translated into over 10 languages. And he's a professor of the practice of international affairs at John Hopkins University and a contributing editor at Atlantic, at the Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council for Foreign Relations and a Moynihan public scholar at the City College. And he founded Persuasion, which is a really wonderful publication um, that I've written for myself. So Yasha, welcome back. Thank you so much for being back to talk about this lovely, cheerful, easy, straightforward topic. Oh my God. You know, I was it's, it's interesting. I went to, I was in, the you know as east as I've ever been in my life, I was in Sri Lanka while the the attack happened on October seventh in a community that was all Israelis because they all the people who leave the military service go there to um, travel, and so everybody was just rushing as the attack happened to go back to Israel. And then I went to India, which we could talk about, and maybe I'll I'll pitch you guys on something of persuasion if I ever have the time for it about just how interesting and unique the Indian response to the Israel-Palestinian conflict has been and how it reveals a lot about that country. But then I'm supposed to be in Israel, which obviously I canceled that trip. So a lot has happened since the last time I talked to you, which is not that long ago. Well, I hope you had a good trip despite everything. Yes. Well, I know you've been on your your book tour and I want to pick up where we left off because we talked about your book about the identity trap and you talked about the identity thesis and you then wrote a subsequent piece about the left's deep roots of anti-Semitism. And uh, a lot of our listeners would have heard our previous conversation, but talk to us a little bit about you know why this response that we've seen on the left, we've talked about it on the show, of people who've been kind of reflexively, I think, anti-Israeli and I think flirting with things that resemble anti-Semitism, if not outright Semitism, why that isn't totally surprising to you based on the work that you did in your book. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, I've been running around the world talking about the book for the last months and the tenor of that conversation has really changed since our last conversation as well. You know, one of the questions that I got in one form or another from everybody I was speaking to when the book was released is, you know, why worry about ideological developments on the left? You know, given how crazy Donald Trump is and given how serious I also think, but threat from the writers, why worry at all about this new uh, set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation on the left? And, uh, you know, while the conflict in the Middle East itself is very, very complicated and while people can reasonably have very different views of it, I think the moral failure of many on the left to even acknowledge the brutality, the sadism of Hamas's terrorist attack in southern Israel 
sort of strange ideological categories that people have been using to think about this conflict. People saying queers for Palestine, even for the Gaza Strip, homosexuals are punished by 10 years of imprisonment. Uh, reproductive rights and the fate of Palestine are linked for reasons that are not in any way obvious has made people understand the point, but perhaps something has gone on the left ideologically, but there's something we really need to understand. And I think that the book has the makings of explaining that. Some of the concepts we talked about really helped to explain why people have been so unwilling and so unable to recognize the ill and the evil of what Hamas has done. Yeah, and let's name what it is we're talking about, because I think for some listeners, they'll be like, I know a lot of our listeners have sent in what they're seeing out there and experiencing. But, you know, I think, you know, one example of this, I, I have tons of friends in my life on the left. And actually it's, I can't remember an issue that has divided the left quite like this. And I have a lot of people in my life who, for the first time in my life, outright justify terrorism. And they say things along the lines of what this uh, Teen Vogue uh, contributor, Najma Sharif, tweeted out on October 7th which is she tweeted, what did y'all think decolonialization meant? Vibes, papers, essays, and then she wrote losers, period. Like, I mean, obviously the tone is very strange given the, the timing of it all, but the sense that the implication being, and I've had people outright say this to me, is like, what would you expect, right? Like, this is this is what happens when you oppress a people. And I, I was... Quite surprised to see, like, I grew up in nine, I grew up in Staten Island and in a nine eleven environment, right? Where like we just kind of all agreed terrorism was bad, but I think that is now a debate within American society. Yeah, and I think that there's a few sort of basic ideas that have become very influential on the left that that helped explain this reaction. So the first of these is the idea that you can really understand the whole world by dividing it into whites on the one side and people of color on the other. And we've talked about this in various contexts in the past, right? That uh, given your identity or your heritage, for example, this idea that I'm a white person, you're a person of color, and therefore we're like, you can't understand me and I can't understand you and all the evil comes from white people and all the victimization is inherent in non-white people. It's just a really overly simple way of understanding the very complicated history of, of many parts of the world. But that is a, a key element of the left point of you. The second, which is similar, is that you can split the world into colonizers and the colonized. But either you're a colonizer or you're colonized, and that is going to tell us really important thing about you. Um, now, those, you know, those are both Manichaean sets of concepts, but don't exactly overlap, but they're made to overlap, right? So the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine and that Russia has actually maintained a very brutal empire for centuries in different forms uh, is defined out of existence. Because if the victims of an empire are white, you don't really think of it as an empire, don't really apply this category of colonizer and colonized to it. But but that's the second key concept, right? And then the third concept uh, that we talked about a little bit is the shift from a traditional notion of racism to a notion of so-called structural racism. It's the recognition that sometimes the old idea of racism, which is just, do you hold deprecating views about a group of people? Do you believe that some group of people is less intelligent or less good or more violent or whatever you might say about them. But that doesn't tell us everything we might want to know about racism because sometimes racism is structural. Sometimes a cab driver might not pick up uh, an African-American in the United States because they think this passenger is more likely to go to a neighborhood where it's less affluent, where it's more likely to be hard to get the next fare. Uh, 
And that cab driver may not be racist, they may not have negative views about black people, but the cab driver may be black themselves. But this passenger is going to be experiencing a form of structural discrimination, structural racism on the basis of their, of their skin color. And so that recognition is important, but now a lot of people have said, no, actually, racism is exclusively structural, right? It's literally impossible, as Vice magazine has written, for uh, people to be racist against white people. If you count as white, then there's nothing that can be done to you that's racist, and perhaps there's nothing that can be done that's unjust to you either. And then finally, there's the fourth idea of intersectionality, which is that because I might experience discrimination based on multiple of my identity categories, um, the only way to overcome that is to fight against all forms of oppression at the same time. And so to be a good activist, if you care about the environment, you also have to have the right view on trans rights, and you also have to have the right view on uh, uh, you know, socialism, and you also have to have a right view on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And those four ideas are then applied to the conflict in the Middle East in a really simplistic way. So people say Jews are white and Palestinians are people of color. And what we're seeing here is the racism of white people. Jews are colonizers and Palestinians are the colonized, and therefore Israelis are in the wrong. Thirdly, because Israelis are white colonizers, nothing that's done to them can be racist and perhaps nothing that can be done to them is unjust. This is just the subaltern, the, 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 the oppressed fighting back, and you're not in a position to criticize that, no matter what the nature of that supposed fight back is, even if it involves baking a baby or even if it involves mutilating grandmothers, right? And finally, if you want to be on the left, if you want to be in good standing, uh, as an activist, or if you just want to be an artist or a writer or a professor that still gets to invited to dinner parties among your friends, you've got to be intersectional. You've got to sign up to this set of ideas. So that explains, I think, how you could end up with uh, parts of the left defending the Hamas terror attack. And we can talk about this, but, but obviously I think it's just a, a, a hugely simplistic and wrongheaded way of understanding what's going on in the Middle East. Well, and on that front, it helped me understand the claim that Jews and Israelis are white, number one. How accurate is that? And number two is whether they're colonizers. Because like my understanding of it is that significant portions of Israelis come from the Middle East and actually were expelled from the Middle East. And you know, some people have argued, including in the Atlantic recently, that there are actually more Jews expelled from Arab countries since independence than Jews have expelled Palestinians. Not that this is a, a you know baseball game. It's not about keeping score, but there's a significant amount of Jews that are unwelcome who are from the Middle East. Uh, and that, too, is that on the colonizer front, Jews have been there for quite a long time. Uh, and to call them colonizers in kind of the land of their origin is a strange concept. Yeah, so this is the sort of really strange thing about this. I mean, you know, I, I've taken to saying that actually this ideology that is now so prominent in, in parts of American public discourse claims to be post-colonial or claims to be anti-colonial in various ways. It's actually incredibly colonialist because it takes categories that make sense to some extent, to a limited extent, given American history, and superimposes it on parts of the world where those categories simply don't make sense in the same way, right? So in American history, uh, not the only line, 
but certainly an incredibly important line of division uh, separated white people versus uh, non-white people. Some people like Michael Linde have argued that perhaps actually the key dividing line in American history has been black people versus not black people. But but certainly sort of a question of whether you're white and certainly a question of whether you're black has been hugely determinative of how you're treated. And so people try to impose that on other parts of the world. But that often makes you misunderstand basic historical events. Whoopi Goldberg a couple of years ago said, the Holocaust wasn't about race because Jews are white. So how could it have been about race? Well, in the United States, at least in New York City, Jews in certain respects count as white today, but they certainly did not count as white to the Nazis. They certainly did not count as Aryan to the Nazis and were exterminated because of a crackpot Nazi idea about race. But all ideas about race are crackpot at some level, right? So you simply cannot impose these American notions on other parts of the world. So the American view is Israelis are white because they come from Europe and Europeans are white. Again, number one, not clear that Ashkenazi Jews are meaningfully white if 6 million of them were exterminated by the Nazis for not having the right race. But as you're pointing out, more importantly, there's now more Mizrahi Jews than Ashkenazi Jews in Israel. There's more Jews whose origins are in the Middle East, these are the Mizrahis, rather than in Europe, vis-a-vis uh, Ashkenazim. And those Jews do not have a visibly different skin color on average than Palestinians. You know, you put a crowd of Palestinians and Mizrahi Jews next to each other, it's going to be very hard to pick out on the basis of the color of their skin who of them are Palestinians and who of them are Israelis. And so the idea that this is whites versus people of color is just a very, very strange way of thinking about this. The same when it comes to the question of colonialism. The origins of the state of Israel are, are complicated, and we don't have to go into all of the history of the British mandate and the people who moved to a territory that was under British uh, administration. Um, I think what's very clear is that Palestinians have a historical link to the land, and Jews also have a historical link to the land. This is not like British people coming over to the United States or coming over to Australia, claiming that that's a virgin land and saying this is now going to be ours. It's a much more complicated historical situation with competing claims going back a century and going back millennia. But what's very clear is that the Mizrahi Jews in Israel uh, certainly are not colonizers because they are people who lived in Iran and Iraq and Morocco and Algeria and all over the Middle East and Egypt and elsewhere. And they were forcibly expelled from those countries. And they had nowhere to go other than Israel. Israel, in many cases, was literally the only option, the only place they could go to, to avoid being killed, being you know, at very serious risk of losing their lives. And to say, therefore, that some kind of violence is justified against them or against their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren, against two or three-year-olds, because they're quote-unquote colonizers, is just a morally abhorrent thing to say and an incredibly strange way of viewing the actual facts on the ground. I mean, by the way, it would be crazy to endorse that a principle even here, right? I mean, some crazy person on Twitter actually bit the bullet on this, but by the same logic, you could say, you know, any white American uh, two-year-old is free to be murdered because they're colonizers. I mean, that is just not how you reason about complicated historical facts and origins of countries and nations. It, 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 it makes no sense in any other context. Why does it make sense in this context? Yeah, Yasha, and it's not even just the white kid, right? Because remember, there's like Thai workers and stuff in Israel, right? Like, 
Yeah, many of the people who were killed on October 6th were from Nepal, I think, a large contingent, from Thailand, etc. Those were not white colonizers. And by the way, of course, Hamas also murdered a number of Arab Israelis on that day. Yeah, and, and we did a whole episode on Hamas. And what I find fascinating is the unwillingness of a lot of these people to confront who Hamas is. I mean, Hillary Clinton actually wrote a good piece today about this. Hamas, my reading on looking back at the history is that whatever people think about the PLO and Fatah, and there are many critiques you can lob at them, they were at various points a Palestinian nationalistic organization that would flirt with the religious aspects of the cause, but at various points never really leaned into it until Hamas comes on the scene and becomes an explicitly transnational Islamic organization that seemed rather like ambivalent about the Palestinian identity. I mean, they started as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Their own charter is very, I mean, among the many other horrible things that are in their charter, there is also a a philosophy that is in no way unique to the Palestinian cause. And nowhere is this acknowledged. I think like you, I talk to people who either outright justify what Hamas did, or I think what the the common thing I hear from people is it skirting past it. Like that's the move I see, which is they just kind of are like, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's kind of not great, but Israel, yada, yada, yada. I don't think people truly acknowledge like if, if in, if across the border in New Jersey, there was a sociopathic, messianic, terrorist organization that at every opportunity tries to kill you, that you're going to treat that a little differently than the way anybody else treats their borders, right? Like that's, that's a different kind of question. Yeah. And again, I'm the origin of a conflict in the Middle East is very complicated and certainly it's perfectly fair to criticize the Israeli government for many things, including the settler policy in the West Bank, and all of that is perfectly appropriate. Um, Israel left the Gaza Strip nearly 20 years ago, and it was actually trying to help the Gaza Strip have some amount of uh, you know, economic feasibility in the last years. And the reason for the security failure is that the Israeli government had wrongly believed, the security services had wrongly believed that people in Gaza were starting to try to, 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 to grow their economy and, 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 and to somehow live in peace. And Hamas, which is uh, running a brutal dictatorship on Gaza, so this is not whatever the complicated facts on the ground of which Gazans support Hamas and which don't, um, it is not in that sense the, the fault of ordinary people in Gaza because they are subject to a brutal dictatorship uh, by Hamas. And this brutal dictatorship uh, run by a terrorist group engaged in this long-running deception of trying to pretend that they care about the well-being of the people while planning this large-scale attack on Jewish civilians. And one of the moving images and terrible images of the last weeks was a woman uh, whose relative was killed in Gaza um, shouting in, in, in pain, this is all Hamas's fault, um, and having people around her shut her up by, by forcibly putting the hand in her mouth, in part for her own well-being, because they knew that she could uh, get into very, very, very serious trouble by the people running her society for saying this, for, for stating this. And so again, I don't want to, um, you know, we'll, we'll get perhaps to the nature response and so on. I completely understand strong feelings about that. And of course, every civilian who's killed in Gaza deserves to be mourned in the same way 
when every civilian who was murdered by Hamas in this uh, terrorist attack. It's a terrible conflict. But you have to recognize the nature of the organization that is running the Gaza Strip. Uh, the fact that, as you're pointing out, it is a terrorist organization that is incredibly callous about the well-being of its own people. That if it wanted a ceasefire, could return the 200 hostages it still has under its control. Uh, and that more importantly, um, if it wanted to avoid civilian deaths in Gaza, could stop using hospitals as staging grounds for its militants and doing all of those things. Now, you can demand and can have different opinions about what Israel should or shouldn't do um, to assure its safety and, and argue about how it, it may be pursuing that goal in the wrong way. I'm open to that conversation. But you also need to then in the same breath say, and perhaps uh, uh, Hamas should not stop uh, civilians in Gaza from going to places that are more safe. Perhaps Hamas should not use hospitals as staging grounds and so on. And, and all of that is left out of a conversation much of the time, not just in the far left, but in the mainstream as well. And I think part of that is um, a problem with the, the liberal mind. So now I'm going from the problems of the specifically illiberal progressive ideology that I write about in the identity trap to a broader problem that people who I count myself among, namely liberals, philosophical liberals tend to have, which is that I think we're often tempted to think that what motivates people around the world is always the same thing, uh, including in our own societies, that everybody just wants, you know, a comfortable life and a good education for their kids and so on and so forth. But there are some people, both in the West and in other parts of the world, um, who are driven by much more ideological motivations than that. Uh, and motivations that often are consumed by hatred, consumed by religious fanaticism. And Hamas is one of those. And if you don't understand that basic fact, you, you, you cannot understand some of the things that are happening in the Middle East, and, and it's very hard to understand what a feasible uh, peace settlement might look like. Yeah, and, and just to remind people, you know, Ghazi Hamad, who's a Hamas leader, said on November 1st, uh, we must teach Israel a lesson and we'll do it twice and three times. I mean, so you're dealing with a group that's just in no way showing any remorse over what they did, right? And we'll do it again and again and again. And the question is then, well, what does Israel do in that situation? And we'll, at the end of this episode, we'll talk through the very difficult, if not impossible, uh, answer to that question. I also, you know, at that point, and, and I'm going to flag this now for our listeners, it's hard to be a liberal in this environment because you're fighting a two-front war. You've got this illiberalism on the left uh, that we just talked about. And then I've never been a fan of Netanyahu. I, when I worked at the U.S. Mission UN, I went to Israel as Netanyahu was kind of making his comeback. And it just became, it's always been clear to me that this, we talked about Gaza, that the settlement policy in the West Bank and the sort of cynical transactional nature that Likud has treated the West Bank in tandem with the extreme right parties has explicitly tried to close off any uh, option for peace and is grounded in a combination of expedient politics and right-wing religious zealotry that any liberal should oppose. And it's, it's immoral and it's actually stupid for Israel. Like you talked about Israel's mistakes, right? One was, I think, not understanding its enemy. Like, you know, Hamas did like their revision to their charter in 2017, which is a bunch of horse shit, obviously. But they did all these cosmetic things to make it seem like they were, you know, playing the game. But clearly they weren't. 
but at the same time, Israel is locating all of their, not all, but a, a significant amount of security resources to sure up these pockmarked settlements in the West Bank. And in my opinion, if you're a liberal, you should have a problem with that. Uh, and the problem is you just can't, it's impossible to fight a two-front war. It's There's not enough energy and there's not much of a constituency. I don't know how many people like you and me there are to fight that battle anymore, you know? Yeah, and by the way, this, I mean, you know, one of the weird elements of a discourse in the last weeks has been this claim that you can't criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. And that's just a lie. Of course you can criticize Israel. You just did. Right. Nothing about what you just said was anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, and, and I agree with all of that. Um, I think the settlement policy has been a disaster. Um, uh, it's been a disaster on strategic grounds, as you're saying, because it is in part the military resources that were concentrated on protecting those settlements in the West Bank, which helped to explain why those uh, border posts in southern Israel on the border to the Gaza Strip uh, were so poorly protected on October 6th. But it's a disaster on moral grounds as well. It makes it very hard to pursue a two-state solution, which I think remains the only realistic peace settlement that we can hope for under any scenario. And there you are talking about a certain form of colonialism, right? And there you are talking about uh, settlers taking land that is not by any uh, sensible moral standard uh, theirs. And you can absolutely criticize that uh, in a full-throated way, and there's nothing anti-Semitic about doing that. Uh, where you veer into anti-Semitism is if you're somehow unwilling to condemn you know, a terrorist attack on Jewish civilians, uh, which, uh, by the way, was launched from the Gaza Strip rather than the West Bank, and so on. So, you know, certainly this is a conflict in which both sides are deeply morally compromised, and there's not just nothing wrong with recognizing that. It may be necessary to recognize that. Well, let's talk about campus unrest in the United States, because I think so much of what has been notable since October 7th is the, the, the difference between how young people in this country view the conflict on average uh, and people like you and me and young people who claim to be liberals. And I think it was surprising to a lot of people to see the sheer numbers. I mean, you look at campus protests, you look at polling data, you look at what's trending on TikTok, and it's unmistakable that young people are way more likely to disagree with a lot of what we just said and veer into some really dangerous territory. Like, you know, Students for Justice for Palestine, which I know is not representative of all young people, but isn't is a an actual student or organization said as the right after the October seventh attack said today we witness a historic win for the Palestinian re resistance across land, air, and sea. Our people have broken down the artificial barriers of the Zionist entity, and then they kind of just go on. Basically, they're celebrating what they view as like uh, you know the storming of Normandy, right? And again, we're talking up here about you know paragliders who who went into a music festival uh, with people from all over the world and killed over 250 people who were just at a rave, you know, something that you'd think students might be able to relate to. And they are not alone. Uh, we can go through it. I think most of our listeners are familiar at this point with all the various student organizations who put out statements of various forms. And then the debate quickly shifted. And I think it should have. And you at Persuasion and your team have been very much in the middle of this which is this isn't time when you have to adhere to your principles, even when it's really uncomfortable. And 
there's an interesting debate about what is an acceptable response to that kind of rhetoric because I'm I treat different actions differently. Like what Bill Ackman is doing, for instance, in the private sector against students who sign a given letter, I feel differently than kicking student organizations off campus or even administrators wading into a lot of these fights. I'm curious as to where you draw the line. Like, like if you believe in free speech, you probably believe people should be able to say crazy things to a certain extent, but you should also probably believe that they should suffer certain societal consequences from people who disagree with those things, but within limits, I'd imagine. Um, no, so look, I, I, I think the, the problem on campus has been revered from the principles of free speech over the last years, and now we're in a dynamic of competitive cancellation. Right now, people are understandably saying, if you've canceled people for all of this trivial bullshit, and now you don't want to speak up against or cancel people for saying these horrendous things, well, what does that say about you? And I mean, I, I share that moral sentiment. The right response is to go back to a genuine culture of free speech in which nobody is fired or canceled for saying controversial things in that way, right? So, uh, so, so for me, the line is not about the content of a speech. It's about the demeanor of all what you do. Right? So if you are threatening people with violence, then that is a breach of student contact norms and, and, and rules at virtually every university in the country. If you're actually engaging in physical violence, then obviously you need to be punished for that. If you disrupt a speech, we might have some tolerance for that. If it's fleeting, just to make your point, and then you allow the event to go ahead. But if you stop it from going ahead, then you are infringing on the freedom of speech of Others, that is not allowed under any sensible conception of free speech. If you are ripping down posters, such as those of the missing hostages that other people have put up, again, you are impeding the speech of others. That is not allowed. You can be punished for that. You should be punished for that. But you shouldn't be punished for saying offensive things. You shouldn't be punished for celebrating the attack on October 6th, no matter how horrendous that may be, no matter how, how good the reasons are uh, that people may have for not wanting to be friends with you or for judging you or for engaging in very robust counter-speech. Now, the problem with all of this is that universities have systematically failed to be neutral in the last five or 10 years, right? Like universities got into the habit of making statements about all kinds of political events, some of them important and you might understand why we do it, sometimes absurd bullshit, right? And then suddenly <laughs> after the worst slaughter of Jews since World War II, all of those universities went silent. And until a public outcry for days and days and days wouldn't say anything. I don't need my university president to tell me what he thinks about the world. If he's spoken up about everything else and he doesn't speak about, out about this, I think, what gives, right? But the right answer to that is not in the middle of a conflict. It should have happened before. Perhaps it can happen in a couple of months to go to a principal stance of saying, we are not going to take a position at a, as a university. We're not going to comment on the latest Supreme Court ruling. We're not going to comment on the war in Ukraine. We're not going to comment on the conflict in the Middle East because we recognize that we're an ideologically diverse institution with people who are going to have very different views about this stuff. And so we're not going to speak for all of the members in our community. Our professors, our students, everybody is free to speak on their own behalf. It is not our job to take positions about what's going on in the war. The same again with uh, you know, punishment for speech. Jonathan Hyde told me recently that on the 
back of the NYU student card, uh, or NYU faculty card for that matter, you have, I think, three numbers. You know, one to call in a medical emergency, one to call if there's an imminent threat to public safety if you're worried there's a terrorist attack or something like that, and one to call an anonymous hotline in case you think that somebody's committed a microaggression against you. Yeah, actually, it's funny. When Ricky Schlott, my co-host of this episode, was on Bill Maher, she pulled out that card, I think, and, they, and Bill Maher was asking her about it. It's very interesting. So if you've gotten into a habit where you say, you know, somebody says, you know, according to the University of California saying, you know, I don't think race exists, you know, there's only human beings, or, you know, America is the land of opportunity. You know, those things, according to University of California, microaggressions. If you're in an environment where that might get you reported and investigated, right? And the university has this immediate response. And then the same university is perfectly fine with students celebrating the murder of babies. People are going to be upset. But the answer to that is not to cancel the people who celebrated the Hamas terrorist attack, wrong as they are. The answer to that is to get out of a game of investigating people for microaggressions. I, I'm 100% aligned with you. Where I am torn right now is private sector instances like this NYU law student who, you know, said some rather weird and crazy things. And uh, Winston and Strawn, I think, was the the firm reneged on their offer to her. And I put myself in the position as an employer, which is if I had hired somebody who said something like, let's say they signed on to that Students for Justice in Palestine statement that basically celebrates a massacre. I'm kind of like, especially I run a media company as do you. I'm like, I don't want this person anywhere near me because of their views. I'm not trying to like cancel somebody. Like I have no opinion about who else employs her. I just personally wouldn't want them around. There's also another subtle irony of like so many of these so-called activists. It's like you could take a, such an extreme position, but then you're spending your time as a corporate lawyer <laughs> defending corporations. It's a whole other irony that I think is worth pointing out. But what do you think should like, do you give a pass to private sector actors? Because, and, and I hope I've been consistent on this. Our listeners would know. I, I tend to believe that private actors should be able to hire whoever they want. And that's, there's not necessarily anything wrong with ideologically screening people if you want a workplace that adheres to certain values. Yeah. So I, I have a different stance on that. I think your stance is, is, is legitimate. The, the point is to be consistent. I go the other way. I just think that to have a genuine culture of free speech, you must be able in a private capacity to take unpopular political views. And you should be protected from uh, certainly losing a job and perhaps more broadly from professional consequences for that. Um, so I favor, and this exists in some jurisdictions in the United States, prohibitions on employers firing people for their political views if it's expressed in private. Obviously, if you're an employee of a coffee shop and you spend your day you know, shouting at your customers about politics, then that's a breach <laughs> of what, how you're supposed to act on the job and, and it'd be fine for them to fire you. If you're a teacher and you go on about political conspiracy theories in the classroom, then your school district should be able to say, keep it out of a classroom or you're going to be fired. But your private political speech in general, I think, should be protected from such consequences. And that would, I think, actually be a present to companies. Because at the moment, companies keep getting under pressure on, on social media, right? Where people are saying, 
this person did this thing on this viral video. You don't see any context. Who knows whether they're actually bad people, but it looks bad, so fire them, right? Um, this person said this thing that is offensive. You know, if you don't fire them, then you inherently or implicitly agree with what they're saying. You're terrible people, you know, person, we're going to bark at you. They say, look, we're not allowed to fire people for private political speech. We might dislike it, but, but that's not the game we're in, right? I actually think that that protects companies from that kind of pressure and it protects, more importantly, the ability of all of us to take controversial political views. And who knows, you know, when our views might become controversial, when a huge majority of our fellow citizens might turn against something that we hold dear. And we know that, that we don't have to choose between being able to express our views and being able to put dinner on the table for our kids. Now, there should be some exceptions to that. One of those is if the, the, the nature of your organization is inherently political, right? Like, obviously, if you're a climate change campaign organization, it's perfectly fine to say, we don't want to hire somebody who thinks climate change isn't real. That doesn't make sense, right? I think media companies would fall under that rubric when media companies become too narrow in the political views that they platform or that they allow their employees to hold. I think these media companies are going to be in trouble, but there's nothing in principle wrong, especially if it's big places that are supposed to have you know, New York Times, the newspaper of record, right? But certainly there's nothing wrong with having an ideologically aligned small publication where you're saying, we are trying to push for certain ideals. And if you don't fit into those, sorry, that's not the place for you. There should be an exception to that. Perhaps there should be an exception for certain very small employers, right? If you run a little shop with five people and you want to have a certain kind of collegial atmosphere and part of that is having shared political commitments, fine, perhaps you can get an exception. I don't think that big corporations or big professional firms with dozens or hundreds of thousands of employees should be in the business of policing the speech of their employees because otherwise we narrow the space for what we can all say in a really perilous way. Yeah, I mean, it's a good distinction. And I think, you know, from the perspective of a media company, I think what's important to us is people coming in because we have Republicans, Democrats, people across the spectrum is like an openness to dialogue. And I think what's interesting is that, and your book kind of traces this, this issue and the way people are communicating it is kind of a proxy and in many ways a symptom of a deeper ideology often that is co-mingled with an inability to engage in lowercase liberal, you know, L liberal kind of free speech. And, you know, it's an irony. I'm almost saying I'm restricting speech to say free speech, but basically we screen for people who are willing to engage with ideas that are different from them. And ironically, uh, this could be a little proxy for it, but I'm not. I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, you're, you've kind of convinced me. I'm, I'm not fully committed to what I just said. I just know that my guttural reaction is I don't want to be sitting. Now. You know, if I'm like a partner at Winston and Strawn, I'm like, I'm not sure I want somebody walking into my office who believes that. But I guess, I, I mean, you make some good points because you. I mean, I don't know if Winston Strawn really wants you. You, you know, or we had Todd Rose from Populous on about this, and he's polled corporate leaders. They really don't want to be in the middle of a lot of this stuff. You know, they don't want to be calling balls and strikes. Yeah, I'm sure they would actually, in some ways, welcome uh, having the, the hands tied. I mean, I thought about a similar argument in a different context, which is that you know, state actors like China can really uh, exercise a lot of control over American corporations because they say, "Hey, this visible employee of yours, you know, the CEO or the CFO or just some random person, uh, you know, a player on your NBA team, has said something that is unacceptable to the Communist Party of China." And if you still want to do business in China, you got to get rid of them. You got to fire them. And I think it would be a huge help to those companies to be able to say, 
sorry, according to the United States legal code, we are unable to fire that person. We wish we could. We just can't, right? <laughs> and that actually yeah. ties your hands yeah, in a Murray way that makes it, China. Yeah. Yeah, but it makes it harder for, for these outside actors to, to exercise pressure on you, right? So sometimes it's helpful for your hands to be tied. And I think many corporations would feel like that in the free speech wars as well. Yeah. I think like, I mean, obviously you'd have to be really well tailored because like, let's say that person went a step further and said something. I mean, one could argue that statement is anti-Semitic, but like, let's say that they go a step further and actually are actively that, like, is that political speech or is that just hate speech? Is that, is yeah, I just, speech? I'm a kind of absolute about this. I think if they engage in unacceptable behavior on the job, uh, that is different, right? I mean, if they treat customers or other professional contacts differently based on their race, that is absolutely uh, a violation, a very clear violation of the, the the expectations you can have of an employee, and you should be absolutely able to fire them for that. But I just don't think that whatever they post on Twitter or Facebook in their private capacity, uh, or whatever they say to their friends over a dinner party, uh, should be grounds for dismissal. Again, obviously, it's perfectly fine for an employer to say, hey, we know you have those views, are you actually willing to work with anybody you might have to work with in this job? Will you actually treat everybody you encounter respectfully? Can you give us assurances of that? And at the first sign that you don't, there's going to be consequences. All of that is fine and, and acceptable and permissible. But as long as, uh, but, but that is an actual violation of the professional conduct that employers can uh, expect from their employees on the job. What you do off the job, uh, opining, about politics of a world in your private capacity uh, should be your business. Um, even, you know, and, and, and part of the workplace is not a family. It's not a friend group, right? Like you're gonna have to work with people sometimes whose views you found obnoxious. That's fine. We wanted to come to, the, at the end of this conversation, talk about where we are right now. And you know, th we're not going to do like a BBC style recount of exactly what's happening right now. As we sit here, though, the, you know, there is a huge debate about Israel's sort of siege on hospitals and Hamas's use of said hospitals uh, as potential staging grounds for their militant activities. And I'm not going to litigate that here. Um, I just wanted to ask you, when this happened in, you know, October 7th, it's obvious that Hamas kind of was trying to provoke a reaction, right? And the weird catch-22 that Israel was in is that they have their own security to worry about. I read statements, you know, about from Hamas. They're very explicit. They, well, they'll do this as many times as they can. And then they have hostages. And that combination creates a, an understandable sense of duty on, on behalf of the Israeli government and its people to do something. On the flip side, this is exactly what Hamas wanted, and they are reaping the rewards of a urban, complicated warfare involving tunnels and a new media environment and an ideolo ideological foundation that has been laid, as you've described, for sympathy to their cause. And it's hard to read this at the moment as anything other than a success for Hamas thus far. Do you see it any other way? Based on their aims, I know that like if your aims are to like keep your people safe, then it's not a success. But that's not their they they. And those are not the aims. Charter. There's been some amazing interviews with Hamas leaders on Arabic TV stations where 
journalists push back more often than Western journalists. And uh, and, and Mr. Hamas leaders said, you know, well, it took, you know, millions of people in Afghanistan to uh, vanquish the Soviets and it took millions of people there and it basically making it very clear we don't care if millions of Palestinians die for the causes they conceive of it. You know, I spoke to uh, a statesman a few weeks ago who I respect a lot uh, and he used the metaphor of Zugzwang, uh, which is a chess term uh, for what is going on. Now, sometimes in chess, there's a position, you, know, you have to take a turn, right? After the other player makes a turn, you know, makes a move, you have to make a move. And sometimes any move you might make is going to make your position worse, but you can't sit it out. You have to make a move. And I think Israel has been under something like Zugzwang after the terrorist attack. For reasons of public opinion, that it would be hard or impossible for any democratic state to witness such a terrible slaughter of its own people and just do nothing about it. Uh, but also for reasons of international security. I mean, Israel is in a dangerous region. And if uh, its neighbors started to think that the country is so weak that it doesn't respond to that kind of form of provocation, it would likely uh, provoke the entry of other countries into the war. It would likely uh, provoke an incursion from Hezbollah uh, on uh, the Lebanese side, and so on and so forth. And so I think for genuine reasons, Israel felt uh, they have to do something. And yet, a lot of what they might have done, a lot of what they did, uh, arguably made the security position worse in the long run, made it harder for them to sustain uh, and perhaps expand uh, the peace treaties with various uh, countries in the Muslim world, which they'd started to do in the last years through the Abrahamic Accords, made it harder to envisage living uh, uh, peacefully door-to-door uh, -door with uh, Gaza in, in the years to come. I think the, uh, Israel has every right to want to destroy uh, Hamas. It is, as we've been saying, a, a violent terrorist organization and just as people in New York City would not tolerate uh, such an organization living next door in New Jersey, it is perfectly understandable that Israel does not want to tolerate uh, that. The organization does uh, want to provoke and in some ways maximize civilian casualties. Um, that is why they are using people as human shields, uh, putting the base in hospitals and doing all kinds of things like that. But uh, that creates a two-fold problem for Israel. It creates a humanitarian problem because the civilians who are being held hostage in those situations do not deserve their fate, um, do not choose to have Hamas wager their lives in this kind of way and are themselves, therefore, innocents whose lives need to be protected. And it creates a huge strategic dilemma because of each of those deaths, uh, Israel's reputation in the world becomes worse and uh, the country risks losing its international allies. And so, you know, sometimes uh, in politics, one has to be glad not to be in a position to have to make certain kinds of choices. And I'm certainly very glad that I'm not the person having to puzzle through how you respond to this Zugzwang, how you try and dismantle Hamas without crossing those moral and strategic lines. Yeah, I mean, on that uh, sunny note, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end for today. Uh, thank you so much, everybody who's out there. Uh, just make sure, go out there, subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't. And then our voicemail is 321 uh, On Thursday, I'm going to finally get around to answering all your questions about this conflict. So keep sending those in. And if you send them in the next 24 hours, I'll probably get to them in time. Uh, but Yasha, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, if you haven't gone out there yet, go out there and get The Identity Trap wherever you get your books. Subscribe to Persuasion. It's really amazing. And Yasha, 
Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you, Ravi. 